Well, let's turn to Colossians chapter number two. Uh, Colossians chapter number two together. And we're going to be in verse number six through ten today. Let's start by reading God's word. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So Colossians chapter 2, a great passage here. I want to talk to you this morning about the shadow war, as we're um, getting the PowerPoint up, but the, the shadow war. I want to talk to you specifically about the collision of worldviews and how to respond. So I believe that in our society, our favorite color is gray. And what do I mean by that? Well, you're probably familiar with relativism, moral relativism, but you think about it in our music. Uh, follow your, your arrow wherever it points. If you're running in politics, you know, just use whatever line gets you elected. If you're in business, just whatever makes you money in your own life, just choose whatever morality makes you most happy and makes you fulfilled in the moment. And so it seems like in every area of American life, our favorite color is gray, except for one. There is still one area in American life where gray is not our favorite color, and that is the law. At least in some parts, in the law, there is still a very strict right and wrong. Have you ever considered the color of a judge's robe? It's a very ambiguous gray, right? No, it's jet black. And a judge's job is to hammer down the gavel, this is right, this is wrong, here are the consequences. And I considered this when I was starting my practice, because when I did... Uh, in the law, we call it hanging a shingle. There's a lot of history behind that, but hanging a shingle. Um, and to, to make ends meet, I became a public defender for a time. And so I would go to what we call plea hearings, where a client would be pleading guilty to a crime. So actually pleading guilty to the crime, so I actually committed the crime. And during those plea hearings, there, there was a time when a, kind of my fairness meter or justice meter, internal meter, would go haywire. Why? It wasn't that you know, they'd committed the crime and were being punished for it. It was that my clients, they seemed to have been subject to a bait and switch. Why? Because culture had told them their entire life, hey, you do you. You determine your own truth. You live your passions. You, you live your best life now. And the world, in a sense, kind of revolves around you. And then all of a sudden, these individuals ran into a camouflaged but very concrete barrier called the law. And a judge said, no, what you did was actually wrong. Now you have to deal with the consequences. And it felt very unfair that here are my clients for the first time realizing, oh, um, maybe there is some black and white in a sense that there is a right and a wrong in our society. And so that experience emphasized to me what I want to talk to you about this morning, which is the, the collision, the clash of worldviews that we're seeing in our society and, and how we're supposed to respond to it. Here's the big idea for this morning. We're experiencing the forceful collision of two worldviews in culture, but also in our churches, in our families, and if we're honest with ourselves, in our own hearts. And we often think of this collision as, as some kind of grand battle. If you're familiar with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, 
We think of it as like that kind of big battle in between. Over here is the, the good guys, you know, and the, the white armor and the shining banners. And over here are the bad guys. And they've got the dark banners in there, evil. And so there's this very clear line of battle. And these massive battles clash and, and kind of movie-grade drama. But in my experience, and I think from Scripture, we can gather that the Christian life is less like some grand battle pitched between the good guys and the bad guys, where the lines are clear and our allegiances are certain. And rather, this struggle is more akin to what I would call a shadow war, one of misinformation, deceit, and quiet uncertainty. So as Christians, we're called to stand firm. But in this cultural moment, you know, why and on what? So today I want to dig into this. How do we experience the shadow war? How do we understand it? And then how should we respond to it? We've looked at our passage here in Colossians chapter number two, just to walk through a couple of these verses. It says, we, as we've therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We're to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. And verse eight's really important. But where lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, not, of course, not all philosophy is bad, but this is a particular type of philosophy that's, that's false after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, basically after the, the pieces of the world's religion. The world actually has a religion as well, and not after Christ. So in every uh, sermon that I preach, I try to do basically three things. One being first, scriptural truth. I want to explain that to you as we gather around the Word, but I also want to do some cultural analysis. So early Christians would have lived in a different context than we do. And times are quickly changing. So what is the culture like in which we're actually trying to apply these principles? What is the clash of worldviews that we're experiencing? And then spiritual formation. How do you take biblical truth in this culture and then apply it as you leave today? So as we kind of peel back the onions a little bit on culture, uh, two quick thoughts about what we're experiencing. I think most of the conflict in our society can be explained by two differing views of freedom. Biblical freedom is the freedom to build our lives according to God's good design. And this is actually the original version of American freedom, based on Judeo-Christian principles, moderate enlightenment ideas. But the idea that we would control ourselves according to a Judeo-Christian moral vision. And that is the freedom to build a society according to God's way. And that's how we flourish, not only in our own lives, but in our society. But I think you can probably agree with me that that word freedom has changed, hasn't it? And a really important question these days is, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Somebody says, what do you actually mean by that? Let me help me understand this. It's a great question. And so what is the word freedom now? Well, instead of being a, a freedom to build a society according to God's good design, I think it has become a freedom from it's a freedom from any sort of, of authority from God, and we can kind of shake our fists at heaven and say, I'm going to build my own life, thank you very much, and we're going to build our society according to our own design. And do you, do you feel this as well, that that's the new type of freedom? I don't need you, God. I don't need to follow God's principles. I can do this my own way. And so that's one, I think, clash that we're seeing in our society. One way I frame that is we we are, or perhaps were, one nation under God. Now it seems like we're one nation over God, and that we are over his guidance and authority in our lives and shared society. 
Another aspect that I think we're wrestling with when it comes to the collision of worldviews is that, in a sense, we now live in a kind of digital technological babble. And what do I mean by that? So let me back up for just a second. If you look back into human history, for much of human history, if you study back into Mesopotamia, uh, even the Middle Ages, much of the human experience was cyclical. You were born, you farmed the land, you fought in wars, you certainly paid your taxes, and then you died, all right? And so this was pretty much it. Like the horse was the fastest, me- fastest method of, of transportation for thousands of years. But now we've experienced something very different. And you look back at the, the scientific technological revolution, there was the Ju- Judeo-Christian viewpoint that was inserted into this, that life isn't just cyclical and meaningless, that we are created in the image of God, and there is an eternal God that cares about us, and there's an end point. And so history goes from being cyclical to scientists thinking God's thoughts after him, and you begin seeing an explosion of technology. Just consider that 1903, you have Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers and the airplane. By 1969, we had planted a man on the moon, and just this last week, SpaceX launched civilians into space. And what's cool about SpaceX, if you've studied their Dragon capsule, is that there, there is a joystick in the Dragon capsule, but it's actually just there for emergencies. And so we literally have civilians orbiting the Earth, controlling spacecraft with their finger. Now, my iPad's crashed a few times, and so I'm not sure I'd be real comfortable with that, but that's what's going on right now, all right? And, and that's where we are technologically. But as we have come to trust progress. Like, everything's always up and to the right, isn't it? You get a new iPhone. It's better than the last one. And so we've come to expect our technology is always going to be better. And therefore, if we have a problem, we don't need God. We'll just fix it ourselves. Let me give you one example from the kind of bioethics piece of this that I heard recently. Um, This was in the Washington a Washington newspaper about the fact that most developing nations are experiencing a drop in their population, a drop in their birth rate. And the Washington Times um, was telling us about how maybe in a couple of decades they'll actually be freestanding, and I'm, I'm trying to be delicate here, but freestanding uteruses, so that literally we would not need human beings to reproduce humans. And, and what would happen in that context is you have human embryos that could be tested. Oh, and this one is going to be smarter, and we think this embryo is going to be taller and better looking, and so we're going to pick that one to be born, but the rest we're going to discard. You see how this sounds more like a sci-fi horror movie <laughs> than a great human future? But So aren't we on, on a path towards, in a sense, a, a digital or a technological babble? We're just like in the biblical story, we don't need God, we'll build a tower to heaven, and we can do it ourselves. I'd like you to think about what are the most controversial issues in our society today? And I understand, especially if you're watching online, if you see this later, um, and even here, I understand there may be differences of opinion, but I'm asking you this kind of objective question. What do you think is the most controversial issue in our times? As we're studying in Sunday school, the first one that came up is abortion. That's certainly been in the news lately. And then what about LGBTQ rights? All right, so These are the most controversial issues, I think we could say objectively, in our society. Now, again, just looking at them from a worldview perspective, what is at the very root of those two issues? 
What is the line that you always hear from the pro-choice movement? My body, my choice, right? What do we hear from the LGBTQ movement? I get to define, or we get to define marriage, our sexuality, our gender. And so do you see how those two controversial issues are actually just symptoms of a, a much more foundational question of who gets to be God? Who gets to have authority in our lives? All right, so I think that's, that's accurate, that that is the worldview collision that we're seeing. We either worship God or we worship ourselves. And we used to like bow down to uh, an idol of some sort. Now we take selfies, right? That's the new idol. And so I think that is the, the culture that we live in. That's the culture in which we as, as followers of Jesus, or if you aren't following Jesus, I'm about to describe how beautiful it is. That's the culture that we have to head out into. That's the, the worldview collision that we find. And it'd be easy to say, oh, those people out there, yeah, they have this worldview collision. But if we're honest, like I said at the beginning, I think that's happening within our own hearts, within our own churches. And that's sometimes why the church can seem powerless. And so let's dive in. That's, if that's the culture, then how in the world are we supposed to respond to it? The first thing that I would say is to realize that it's rock candy. Realize it's rock candy. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had rock candy. It's basically crystallized sugar on a stick. It's like a sucker. All right, it's great. It's good stuff. It's just probably not a great foundation for your house. All right, first time it rains, the whole thing implodes. All right, so it tastes great, but it's not a great foundation for your life. And so I would suggest that a lot of the kind of truth claims in American culture that we hear all the time. In fact, it's like every day you get a dump truck load of these truths, the truth claims I'm about to go through. We have to realize that they are, they're seductive half-truths, many of them. Wow, they sound good. Uh, it feels good in the moment, but they're not a great foundation for our lives. And so let, what are a few of those? What are a few of the claims that we hear all of the time? All right, so run quickly through these. I don't think any of these are novel, but follow your heart. Isn't that something you hear all the time? Define your own truth. You define your own way. You have the strength. You have the wisdom. You have the foresight to direct your own life. And don't you dare let anybody else tell you what to do. Don't we hear this all the time? Next, you can do anything. Yes, you can do anything. And I, hey, I'm glad that we have a lot more options than before. But I was in youth ministry for about a decade and I don't know if anyone here has been to uh, the Cheesecake Factory lately. It's good food. But if you know what I'm talking about, their menu is like 15 pages long. All right, and you can have everything from like a bowl of cereal to a filet mignon. And like tacos, we've got it. Chinese, we've got it. And I think that's their business model. Like you've got picky family members, just go to the Cheesecake Factory. Everybody can get whatever they want. But it is, I'm literally like sitting there looking for my lunch and I'm getting depressed. And I just, there's too many options. I don't know what I'm going to choose, all right? And so you can do anything, like literally. Um, and I, I sometimes tell people that, you know, I, if, if I had the, um, an interest in being a ballerina, that people would probably pay not to see that. But American culture says, hey, go for it, man, all right? Just go for it. You can do anything. The next one, of course, is to design your own sex life, all right? You, and I know this is Sunday morning, but isn't this thrown at us? My daughter's nine, and we've had conversations. We've had conversations about human sexuality because it is just 
constantly being thrown, not just at us, but at, at increasingly early ages. Everything is hypersexualized. The idea that, you know, beyond this very blurry line called consent, no rules. We get to make the rules ourselves. And then lastly, you deserve more. And in our Sunday school class, uh, it was brought up, I thought this was a great point. It's not just that we want more. It's that we want more right now, all right? Not yesterday, not 10 seconds ago, like right now. Um, back when I was, again, teaching the teens, uh, we were doing an activity, and they were putting bags in to make popcorn. And several of the kids were, like, getting impatient over it taking about two and a half minutes to pop popcorn. And, like, you know, what, if we went back, like, 100 years, people would not understand this, all right, because you had to go kill the deer, bring the deer back to your cabin, skin it, make the, the fire, um, and then you get to eat it. And you guys are upset that you can't have popcorn, which is packaged for you, and it pops in two and a half minutes. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, we forged our way into the frontier for this? Okay. <laughs> but, like, you deserve more. You guys get it, right? You deserve more McDonald's. You deserve a Maserati. Like, no, I don't. I don't have the money to pay for that. <laughs> you deserve everything. So, you get, these are the truth claims being thrown at us nonstop by advertisements, in our education, in our entertainment, etc. So remember, this is rock candy. These all sound good, but they're not a great way to build a life on. So the next thing that I would say, okay, so realize that these claims, they're seductive half-truths, they sound good, they may feel good in the moment, not a great way to build your life. So number two, I would say that you need to wrestle with the rocking, kind of the, the concept of a boat that rocks back and forth. That if you are to build, if you build your life on these principles. You can expect for the boat to rock, eventually it capsize, and you experience loss. I was, I was thinking about this because uh, in our society, we always push towards, hey, you know, your best life, you're finally going to make it. And one of the big things that we push in our society is sports. Now, I, I played basketball. I really enjoyed that. And so um, it struck me lately, um, this particular story. I don't know if you, you guys saw this, but um, maybe been two weekends ago, Indiana played Iowa. And my colleague from Iowa calls me. <laughs> He's like, do you guys know how to spell in Indiana? Okay, it's not like Indiana is Tajikistan or something, okay? It's Indian with an A. <laughs> right? So it's like you had one job. <laughs> and so this is a running back. Um, and I, you can see his look on his face. I mean, props to him for for coming out. But your dream is, I'm going to play college football. And I think this was his college debut. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it's the opening of the season, at least. I've been putting in all of this work. Mom and dad are in the stands. You know, grandma's watching from home. Like, you guys can't spell my jersey right, okay? And isn't that kind of like life sometimes? Now, maybe he's going to go on to the NFL, and that jersey's going to be worth millions someday because it's unique. Um, my friend from Iowa was not very kind either. Um, he, he, something along the lines of, well, once you guys learn how to spell, maybe you can learn how to play football. <laughs> so, so there's lots of things I could say back, but uh, hey, we're trying to be Christian here. <laughs> all right. um, but if you can imagine, that's like life, right? You put all of, all of your effort into something and then it doesn't work out sometimes. And so what do you do with the realities of life? And so I believe Christianity following the way of Jesus is a much better foundation for your life, for your family, for our society, for the reasons we're about to talk about. 
So let's take a look now at what, is the, what does the Bible say? What we've heard, kind of the American truth claims, the cultural air that we breathe. Now what does Scripture say in response? I would say that the first one is don't follow your heart, you should follow your hero, who is Christ, all right? Digging into that a little bit, maybe I'm just the weird one here today, please don't answer that question or statement, but I don't know about you, but I'll wake up in the morning and I want one thing. And by the afternoon, I pretty much want something else, all right? So we say follow your heart because your heart is a source of stability, strength, and wisdom, and foresight, and you know everything that you need to. You get to define your own truth. You need everything, uh, you have everything in your heart to accomplish your life. But as we know, the heart is unstable. From a Christian perspective, it's desperately wicked. And we find in our heart not just, oh, I'm unstable, I don't know what to do, but sometimes the seeds of, of evil and sin. And there's a great quote by a the founder of the Acton Institute or a leader at the Acton Institute that said, we've, we've told an entire generation to go find themselves, but what if when they find themselves, they discover that they're jerks? We all, we all can be difficult at times, right? And so the point is, culture says, follow your heart because it's going to be the source of strength and wisdom, but the world's changing so quickly. Our hearts are unstable. We need something a stronger foundation. That's why I love verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Don't we want a sense of, of certainty, not just here in our lives, but also in eternity? That is what Christ offers to us. I often will say that Luke 9, 23 may be the most countercultural verse in the Bible, at least for American culture, because Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Like, what? <laughs> deny myself? Follow Jesus? Uh, again, do you see how that just kind of smashes into uh, the culture these days? But again, if we're, we're critiquing, we're looking at what does culture tell us? Looking just a little bit below the surface there, you see why that's unstable and not a great way to build your life. Jesus gives us a much better option. The next one, you can do anything. One of the, the issues with Generation Z, one of the distinctives of Generation Z, which when you get into generations, there's always some argument, but born something like you know, 1999 to 2015, more than any generation, they wrestle with mental health. I think part of that has to do with exposure to social media. Maybe growing up, you were exposed to a peer group all right, and you had lots of you know, different choices. You compared yourself to other people. Gen Z is having to compare themselves to the entire world. In fact, Facebook came out with a study this week that said Instagram is actually harmful to teen girls. Like, we needed a study for that? <laughs> um, because it's that constant comparison, that constant sense of anxiety. We have so many choices, and the world tells us you can do anything, but then we realize even on our best days, we're weak. If you study the, the notes, the memoirs of some of the greatest athletes, the greatest leaders of all time, they all, study, uh, they all struggled with a lack of confidence. And so what does the Christian do? Because the world says, well, if you don't have the confidence to go accomplish something, that's, you're, there's something wrong with you. But the Christian realizes, no, you're right. I don't have the strength to accomplish what God's called me to do. Why? Because I need his strength. 
And so the Christian response to I can do all things is I can do all things through Christ. That God has put you on the planet at this very moment with your particular skills, your particular opportunities, and given you a very specific call to accomplish in your brief time on this planet. And he has given you all the strength that you need to accomplish that call. Isn't that a better way to live? I mean, doesn't that give nobility to having to wake up in the morning, go to a job maybe you're not all that crazy about, but you get to be a light that shines the light of Jesus in that space? I think that's much better than, well, hey, you can do anything. Next, I would say that God's design is best. God's design for our sexuality is best. Of course, the society says, hey, ultimate freedom. Do whatever you want. The most recent one being polyamory. Um, You've probably seen some of the articles promoting this. Um, Apparently, polygamy, which is just one man with multiple women, um, is patriarchal. So polyamory is the, the way that it's being framed. You know, two men, three women, whatever combination, you can do that. And so society keeps saying, ultimate freedom. But what I think we're, we're finding, especially in the Christian life, is that that ultimate freedom becomes bondage. It's one of those where, you know, it's, I think I'm in control of it, but it's actually controlling me. And so those that wrestle with a pornography addiction, you know, the question is, are you in control of that desire? Are you in control of that lust? Or is it in control of you? In this ultimate freedom, do whatever you want, do whatever feels good, it ends up trapping us. One of my uh, prized books, and I think there's a, a better explanation of this, is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, this was given to me by my grandmother, who is in a sense the kind of spiritual matriarch of our family. She came to Christ first, and it's probably a, a large reason, a large part of the reason why I'm a Christian today. If you're not familiar with the book, it is a senior demon writing um, opinions and advice to a lesser demon who's trying to keep this Christian guy, or this guy from coming to Christ or living out his, his call. And so, you know, one, one demon giving advice to another, like, what could go wrong? Thanks, Grandma. <laughs> right. And he was like, Josh, you were, you know, Dave, uh, Pastor Cook is listening. Josh is giving advice from a demon. <laughs> I've never had that in the pulpit before. <laughs> All right, but I, here, let me explain why we're, we're, we're sharing so it's just a unique perspective written by C.S. Lewis in World War II, and he says this. Uh, so again, Wormwood speaking to the lesser demon who's trying to get this Christian man off target. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. I'll stop there for a second. Just mull that over. God is the one that created sexuality, and it is his good gift to us. Culture wants to kind of twist that, doesn't it? Next, he says, and and this is a really important sentence, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's, Satan's, heart. That is, I believe, one of the best encapsulations of culture's teaching. I think it's from the enemy, trying to destroy what God has said is, our, is his good design for marriage and our sexuality. Because God wants us to live in abundance. He wants us to experience good things as he's designed them. And that's what leads to life. That's what leads to abundance in our lives. But culture wants to say, no, you're missing out. Christ has said otherwise. 
Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man that trusts in him. And the last one there, it, our culture says, you deserve more. Scripture says, you deserve death. Oh, thanks, Scripture. That one's not hard to explain in culture, but actually this is a great truth for us to understand, right? Because culture is, you know, it's everybody I know best, uh, the world evol- evolves around me, the universe evolves around me, and so how dare you say anything about me? Scripture says no. Actually, we, we're all sinners. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've sinned, and we need Christ's redemption to be saved, to escape hell. And so all of us, whether you're a millionaire, billionaire, whether you have a, job, a part-time job, you're struggling to make ends meet, we're all there, right? And so the Christian realizes, I don't deserve anything more than what I have. I don't deserve what I have. I deserve death. And anything that God has given me to steward, I should be grateful for. And I should be telling others about this beautiful message of Jesus Christ. And that takes us from the sense of entitlement to a mode of engagement that I want to get out. And it doesn't matter. I'm not a part of some clique that I'm going to look down my nose at someone else because maybe they drive a car that doesn't look like mine or their house is smaller than mine. The Christian should never be a part of those things because we deserve death. And so I find these biblical truths to be such a powerful refutation of how to live in our culture. And finally, I would say, rest on the rock of ages. Rest on the rock of ages. Come back to verse number six. As you've therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. And then down to verse 10. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I love Matthew 7, 24 through 25. It says, therefore, whosoever hears these things of mine, And does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. That first verse, verse 24, it's important. It says, Whoever hears these sayings, but not just hears, but the person that does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. So this Christian faith. It's, it's not just about having this kind of foundation where you can kind of chain your doors, shutter your windows, and say, well, I'm good. No, the Christian faith is you have these truths, but you've been giving these truths to steward, to live out, to be a reflection to other people about God's goodness and his grace so they too will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and will begin living out his way. A couple of thoughts here. One of the claims that's kind of thrown in our face about Christianity is, oh, you know, you have your faith, but it's not really all that reasonable. I believe that that this book, God's Holy Word, is not just a bunch of pages, not just some stories, but it is literally the, the Word of God, the creator of the universe. And it is the truth for our time, just like it has been the truth for all time for the church. And it it is the rock upon which we can plant our lives, upon which we can plant our church, upon which we can plant our communities. And so our, our faith is not just something that's made up or it's just something that's kind of out there. It is strong. It is reasonable. I think about the Bible itself, that if you look back at the manuscripts 
of, of ancient texts. We have maybe one of Aristotle, one of Plato, a couple of those. But the, the manuscripts that support these scriptures are incredibly numerous. And so we can trust that we have God's word poured, uh, passed down to us. I think about archaeology, of all of the archaeological evidence that has come to support the Bible over the years, things like the Hittite Empire. Many archaeologists thought the Hittites didn't exist. It was in the Bible, and then they found it. And then prophecy. If you look in like Daniel 11, Daniel 12, Daniel 13, and these chapters are, are part, of, part of the reason I'm a Christian. You have a book that is, it was published at a specific date in history, and it prophesies events into the future with complete accuracy. Man can't do that. And then just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in my own life, him pricking me when I sin, him blessing me, comforting me during difficult times. I know with a, a rock-hard certainty that this book is God's word and that this is truth for my life. Beyond that, I believe that as Christians, we need to redevelop a confidence that this is not just true, but that is also good for our society. How many Christians do you, do you talk to? They're like, yes, I believe the Bible, but you know, I don't know if I really want to tell anyone about it. Or I don't know if I want to have that difficult conversation about what Scripture says. No, we can be confident that this is God's Word and that what it prescribes is best not just for me, but for our entire society. So again, come back to rest on the rock of ages. There is so much uncertainty in our times. So much is changing so quickly. And it's easy to just sit back and think, oh, this, it's hopeless. There's so much going on. I can't even understand it all. But we come back to rest on the rock of ages. And that's not a, I'm just going to sit in my armchair. It's more like the starting blocks for a runner. It's that you get your footing so you can go out and impact your community. A couple of other verses, Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Be not entangled, again, with the yoke of bondage. Therefore, my beloved brethren, uh, Philippians 4.1, my, my dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. You may be aware of this history. Uh, you may, may not. But Indiana actually has a, a fascinating history involving the Underground Railroad. If you, you think back to the Civil War, the under, and before the Civil War, the Underground Railroad would help escaping slaves leave the South and come into Indiana, into the North, and for a time to Canada. And I live in Madison, uh, in Hanover area, and actually just down the road uh, from our house is what's called the Eleutherian College. Uh, it's not very well known. But it was built, it was the first college in Indiana to admit blacks. And a lot of the students were actually sla escaped slaves, and this was the cover for them. In fact, one of the trustees of the college was arrested uh, because he was assisting escaped slaves. The, the case was eventually thrown out. And a key part of the Underground Railroad was a lady named Harriet Tubman. You've probably heard of, of Harriet Tubman before. When she was a young girl, the slave master threw a weight at someone else and she kind of stepped in the way and it, it hit her head and she would always kind of through her life have seizures and uh, difficulties. But despite that, she escaped. And she had her own freedom. She could have stayed in the north, not risked her life. But from what we understand, she made at least 13 different trips back into the south and helped at least 70 other people escape from slavery. 
And then during the Civil War, she actually served as a spy for the Union Army and set up an espionage ring uh, for the Union Army because she knew all of the back roads. And she, she had this interesting phrase, and, and she had lots of interesting phrases, one of them being, I can only die but once. All right, they asked her, well, how do you have the courage to go back there? There's, there was a huge award on her head, and she would say, well, I can only die but once. But there's a phrase that she, she would use from time to time that just stuck out to me, especially in reference to what we're talking about this morning. Here's what she said. I always told God, I'm going to hold steady on you, and you're going to get me through. I always told God, I'm going to hold steady on you, and you're going to get me through. And so as we talk about resting on the rock of ages, during this very difficult moment in our culture, in the life of the church, in our own hearts, what a great message from a former Christian, a believer in Jesus, who didn't just kind of sit back with this knowledge, but this was the foundation for her to go out and impact her times. That's my encouragement to you as well. I always try to wrap up what I say with just kind of one sentence or one phrase. Um, this is it for this morning. Standing on Scripture turns bondage into abundance. What this, our culture is telling us, it doesn't lead to true freedom. It leads to bondage. But standing on Scripture turns into abundance in your life, the life of your family, your church, and our community. Let's pray. As you have your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to take just a, a few moments here and I'll kind of give us a time of silence and then I will close in prayer. But just before you head back out into the busyness of the week, I'd like you to have a little bit of time for self-reflection. Uh, the first question really is for you is this. Have you in your own heart, and these can sound really great, these can sound, uh, man, these feel good in the moment, have you given in, in the shadow war, where there's lots of deceit and manipulation, have you given in to any of these American truth claims, but that are actually false and harmful? And so maybe you look back through the list, is there one of these that you've given into? And then the second question, is there one of these where the biblical truth refutes it, that you need to grab onto? Maybe it's something like, I don't feel like I have confidence in my life. You can do all things through Christ. Maybe it's an issue with pornography. Maybe it's a wrestling with God's view of sexuality. They come back and say, no, this is true and it's good. And then lastly, are we resting on the rock of ages during this time? And so I'm going to go quiet here for just a, about 30 seconds or so. I know that can sometimes be awkward, but let's spend some time with the Lord.